Well, good morning. Uh, good to be with you. Um, if you've got your Bibles with you, uh, we're going to look at Psalm 46 this morning. Uh, this wasn't at all what I had originally prepared, uh, but during this week, God spoke quite clearly, and uh, I was beginning to feel, mm, I'm not sure that what I've prepared is uh, for you, uh, and so God spoke to me about Psalm 46, and so that gives me real encouragement, uh, as I've now got no doubt whatsoever that he has a definite plan for you in hearing from Psalm 46 this morning. That's a good place to start, isn't it? If you've looked at the Psalms before, you'll have noticed that often there is an inscription at the top of the Psalm. This might give some indication as to why the Psalm was written um, or by whom. Uh, sometimes a theme is mentioned and then there are more technical notes, perhaps for the musicians uh, who would play and sing or how it should be sung. And Psalm 46 is no different. So before we read it, let's look at the inscription. Firstly, we're given the theme. God, the refuge of his people. In some versions, it will say, God, the fortress. If nothing else, this will help you to know whether I keep on track and true to the word this morning. Next, we find, for the choir director or for the chief musician. There are just over one third of the Psalms with this notation and quite simply indicates that these are Psalms that should be sung. The choir director or chief musician would have led the temple worship. So this and many other Psalms would have been used in corporate worship. It may have been a set piece sung by a choir, as the last part of the inscription, set by Alamoth, probably means sung by soprano voices. And then finally it says, a song, which pretty much confirms it should be sung. <laughs> You'll have spotted that I skipped over the note, a psalm of the sons of Korah. And that's because I want to just focus on this for a few moments. And we will get to read the psalm in a few minutes, I promise. So who is this Korah who had sons? Well, Korah lived during the period when the Israelites were between Egypt and the Promised Land. They were in the wilderness. He was born into the tribe of Levi, just like Moses and Aaron. And he was a rebel. Now, immediately, I have some sympathy with him because I'm a bit of a rebel myself. I don't particularly like being told what to do. I generally have an opinion, which, of course, is right most of the time. And I'm happy to share my opinion. I have a healthy respect for leaders, but equally happy to challenge them. And that's what Korah did. He challenged the leaders. Now, even by my standards, I think he may have gone over the top in how he presented this challenge. He gathered 250 leaders, came to Moses and Aaron, and said, you've gone too far. 
The people are holy. God is with us. Who exalted you over the people? I don't think Korah was being altruistic and acting out of concern for the people of Israel. It's pretty clear he thought he could do a better job. And he was clearly a leader as he gathered 250 others to his cause. Moses accepts the challenge and tells them to gather the next day at the tent of meeting. He says, let God decide who should lead. By the following day, Korah had gathered a much larger crowd. In number 16, it says this, they stood at the doorway of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Thus Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the doorway of the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. God then speaks to Moses and he says, stand back, I'll consume the lot of them. Interesting that Moses doesn't say, yeah, go on, they deserve it. He falls on his face and cries out for the people and he says, don't let the sin of one man cause you to be angry with the whole congregation. So God says, all right, Let them go back to their tents, but tell the people to keep well clear of Korah's tent and those of his two key co-conspirators. Moses then addresses the people and says, if Korah and the rest live full lives, then the Lord has not sent me. But if God does something different, like maybe opens up the ground and swallows them, then it's pretty clear that God has spurned them. And that's what does happen. There appears to be a localised earthquake and Korah, his two co-conspirators and their families are all destroyed. The sad thing is that the people don't learn anything from that experience. And they went on to blame Moses and Aaron for the death of Korah and the rest. There's a really sad verse at the end of Numbers 16. It says, But those who died by the plague were 14,000 odd, besides those who died on account of Korah. It's not something you'd want as your epitaph, that many people died because of you. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, we have a psalm written by the sons of Korah. Well, how can that be? Well, we find out a little later in Numbers, Numbers 26, talking about this uh, occasion. It says, The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up along with Korah when that company died, when the fire devoured 250 men so that they may become a warning The sons of Korah, however, did not die. And then in Chronicles, we find out a little bit more. Shalom, the son of Kor, the son of Ebiasaph. Why do they have such difficult names? The son of Ebiasaph, the son of Korah. And his relatives of his father's house, the Korahites, were over the work of service, keepers of the threshold of the tent, And their fathers had been over the camp of the Lord, keepers of the entrance. 
They were doorkeepers, stewards. And if we were to flick ahead to Psalm 84, also a a psalm of the sons of Korah, we would find verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. But they weren't all doorkeepers. Again in Chronicles. Now these are those whom David appointed over the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark rested there. They ministered with song before the the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. These are those who served with their sons. From the sons of the Kohathites were He-Man, the singer. You know, if you called your son He-Man, you wouldn't necessarily expect him to grow up a singer, would you? But anyway, he did. The, The son of Joel, the son of many, many others, and then the son of Korah. And in Psalm 46, these sons of Korah write a song expressing that God is their refuge even in the face of earthquakes, the very thing that happened to their father or their grandfather or great-grandfather back through the generations. Why is this important? Well, there's no resentment or bitterness towards God for the, for the way he dealt with Korah and his rebellion. Maybe they're grateful for the fact that the sons survived and were able to live. But they lived by giving themselves in service to God, not by railing against him. The doorkeepers were able to say, I'd rather stand at the threshold of the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Why? because those tents disappear under the earth and are never seen again. They are able to say, even though the earth shakes and the mountains disappear, it's okay, because God is my refuge. I'm not relying on physical things to be my refuge. I'm trusting God. And I came across this great quote when I was preparing, and it's from a blog on Korah and his rebellion. You know, there are blogs out there on all sorts of things, and there's several blogs on Korah and his rebellion, and it says this. To lead his people Israel, God had selected men of his own choosing. God had no interest in holding a popularity contest, collecting resumes, or letting someone appoint himself to the position of prophet, priest, or leader. Korah's problem was not that he was unqualified, humanly speaking, for the position, but that he was arrogant, stiff-necked, and self-promoting. Korah, attempting to install himself as the leader, ironically claims that Moses set himself above the Lord's assembly. It's a classic case of the guilty person accusing someone else of his own misdeed. But God did not call Korah, he called Moses. God calls whom he chooses and equips them for service. Actually, God did call Korah, just not to lead the people of Israel. He was called to be a Levite, part of the priesthood, to serve the people. Interesting 
that it wasn't enough for him. But it was enough for his sons. So as we come to read Psalm 46, there's one other inscription that appears in the psalm, splitting it into three sections or three verses. It's the word selah, and it probably means pause and think, and may have had a musical interlude. You know, this morning we had the musicians playing in the background when other things were going on. It's a bit like that. So as we come to read this psalm, I will pause between the sections, but not for very long, because we're going to pause and think about the whole psalm in a minute. So Psalm 46, we got there. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth should change, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving, or be still, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Let's look in a little more detail at these three sections. Firstly, verses 1 to 3. God is our refuge and strength. The dictionary definition of refuge is quite simple. A place that gives protection or shelter from danger, trouble, unhappiness, etc. As Levites, the sons of Korah would have had a good understanding of what refuge meant. Just before the people of Israel entered the promised land, God gave them instructions as to how the land should be divided up amongst the 12 tribes. And those tribes were told they had to release 48 cities for the Levites to live in. Of those cities, six were designated cities of refuge, which were places of protection for anyone who had taken a life by accident. These weren't for hiding in, they were for living in. There were strict procedures to follow, but if the person was found to be innocent, they were free to live in the city in a place of protection and safety. 
Now, it's fairly easy to understand how a city or a particular place can be a refuge. But how can God be our refuge? Well, he is a person of refuge rather than a place. When I was growing up, my two older brothers were my refuge. Don't get me wrong, they were as rotten to me as any older brother can be. But I remember, I remember one occasion when they played catch with me across the living room, and I was the ball. They could throw me from one to the other because they were strong enough. They were sort of five, six years older than me. But if I was in trouble, I didn't need to find a place. I needed to find a brother. And then I valued their strength, and I wasn't afraid any longer. Now, that's fine when you're a child and your big, big brother can look after you, but, but when you grow up, it's not quite so straightforward. You hit challenges that aren't solvable by brute strength. They might be physical or mental or spiritual, but you can't give them a black eye and send them packing. And that's where God is able to be our strength, because he is able to affect any and every situation, whatever it might be. And to illustrate this, the writers of Psalm 46 use the earth, this physical enormity that we live on and is to us solid and secure, even if the earth should change. The mountains slip into the heart of the sea and the waters roar, we still don't need to be afraid. Because God is even more powerful than those things. And if he can be relied on in that situation, he can be relied on in any situation. You may have noticed from the PowerPoint I headed this section past and present, and I haven't mentioned either yet. Well, I want to touch again on the sons of Korah. They identified that God is a very present help in trouble. They were shaped by their understanding and experience of God not by their past. Remember, their distant relatives were orphaned. They would have been brought up by some other Levite family and no contact possible with parents, sisters, aunts, uncles, cousins and the extended family that was so important in Jewish life and culture. They could have grown up bitter, hurt, resentful, untrusting of God, afraid of God. But instead, we find them declaring, God is our refuge. How are you with your past? Do you find yourself playing the what-if or if-only game? On Friday, the 28th of October, 1977, just four weeks after Liz and I were married... I dived into a swimming pool, hit my head on the bottom, bled quite profusely, fractured my skull and ended up in hospital. The following day, I was allowed home. And apart from having to be watched for a couple of weeks in case of concussion, I apparently suffered no ill effects. 10 years earlier, in July 1967, a girl called Johnny dived into Chesapeake Bay, Maryland, 
misjudged the depth of the water, and also suffered a fracture. However, hers wasn't of the skull. Hers was between the fourth and fifth vertebrae, resulting in paralysis from the shoulders down. During her two years of rehabilitation, according to her autobiography, Johnny, she experienced anger, depression, suicidal thoughts, and religious doubts. However, during occupational therapy, she learned to paint with a brush between her teeth and began selling her artwork. She also writes and to date has written over 40 books, recorded several musical albums, starred in an autobiographical movie of her life, and is an advocate for people with disabilities. And do you know what the first opening words of her biography on Wikipedia are? Johnny Erickson Tada is an evangelical Christian. Now, I've read her autobiography, and I know she played the if-only game. But amazingly, she didn't allow that to define her. And she found her refuge in God. A few years after my incident... Liz and I watched the movie of Johnny's life. And up until that moment, Liz had never realised the full impact of what could have happened to me. But watching that film, she played the what-if game. We may never know why things happen to us. And apart from... Sorry, excuse me. And part of our problem is that we try to answer that why question. And because we don't find an answer, we can't, won't, or don't move on. And the place we need to move on to is finding our refuge in God. It's not easy, but it is possible. The sons of Korah did it. Johnny Erickson did it. And in a less dramatic way, Liz and I have done it. Inevitably, how we are now is the cumulative effect of many things. Our upbringing, our environment, our friends, our experiences, our challenges, our successes, our failures. We can allow them to define us. But if we do, we will find ourselves hiding behind resentment, lack of trust, fear of failure, and avoiding close relationships, because our security has been placed in things that ultimately let us down. Alternatively, we can determine to trust God in all these things, even if we don't understand why they have happened. And that enables us to declare, with the sons of Korah, that God is our refuge and strength a very present help in times of trouble. We're going to watch a a short video clip now, which is a song sung by Johnny. Uh, And the, the, the song is called Alone Yet Not Alone. And it's the title song of a film from 2014. And in the video, you'll see clips from the film. And I want you to listen particularly to the prayer that she prays at the beginning. 
Inspiring, isn't it? Let's move on to the next section. Verses 4 to 7. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. In immediate contrast to the image in the previous verses, where we see the waters roaring and foaming, here we find a river that brings gladness. It's interesting in relation to the city, because the city of God, Jerusalem, does not have a river. So here the writers are looking forward prophetically to the river spoken of by Ezekiel, that flowed from the temple and got deeper and deeper, bringing life wherever it went. And then in Revelation 22, we find the river of the water of life coming from the throne of God, bringing fruitfulness and healing. And all this in the new Jerusalem, this place where God dwells and brings light and life to all. These sons of Korah have recognised that dealing with the challenges of life will one day come to an end. They see a city that will never be affected by earthquakes or volcanoes because God is in the midst of her and she will not be moved. Nothing can shake this eternal city. I love this next verse, that God will help her when morning dawns. And the negative in me says, so why is he not going to help her for the rest of the day? But in Revelation, we find that there is no day and night because there is no sun. God is the light of this city and it's always day. Then we see something of the transition between what we're experiencing now and this glorious future. And we also get a glimpse of the power of God in comparison with the power of the challenges we face. Here, by reference to nations and kingdoms, which the writers would have clearly understood as some of the biggest challenges they faced with invasions and wars all around them. But somehow they have understood the vast chasm between these warring nations and the power of God. He raises his voice and the whole lot disappears. The earth melts and that heralds in this new kingdom. In fact, a new heavens and a new earth with the old passing away. And then as if to reinforce where our security lies, they announced that the Lord of hosts is with us and the God of Jacob is our stronghold. Why the God of Jacob? Well, we could do a whole series on Jacob. But briefly, let me highlight one thing. Jacob wasn't a very nice person. He was selfish, scheming, deceitful, untruthful, and definitely not our choice of the person God should bless. One day we find Jacob on the run from his father, fleeing from his brother and all alone. 
The sun goes down and he grabs a stone as a pillow and goes to sleep. God appears to him in a dream. And while we might expect God's message to be pretty clear that he should change his ways and be reconciled to his father and his brother, that's not what he says. This is what God says. I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised. God is a God of grace, and that is clearly evident in his dealings with Jacob. I don't know about you, but when I describe Jacob as selfish, scheming, deceitful, untruthful, I think, that sounds a little bit like me. I don't deserve to have God as my refuge. To have a place in the future where I dwell with God forever and never have to worry about anything ever again. No, I don't deserve it. And that is the point. God is our refuge and strength because he wants to have a close relationship with us forever. Let's move on to the final verses, verses 8 to 10. Come, behold the works of the Lord. These are slightly different to the previous verses in that they stated a fact about the future. There is a river. Whereas here, we're invited to behold the works of the Lord, which would indicate we can see them now. But these are things we only see in part. Desolation wrought, wars ceasing, bows breaking, chariots burning. We see something of God's intervention as the church prays, but it's in no way complete. And that makes it hard to prove to an unbelieving world that God does intervene. It's a bit like healing. We know that through Jesus' death on the cross, he carried our sins and iniquities, but also our diseases. He rose with healing in his wings. And yet when we pray, we don't see everyone healed. But we do see some. And so we keep praying. We maintain our faith in God, our healer. It's much easier to believe in something that is yet to come. So we can wax lyrical about the new heavens and the new earth and how wonderful it's going to be because there's nothing I need to do now that shows I believe it. But if I believe that God heals today, then I have to step out and pray for healing. Or if I believe in spiritual gifts, I have to bring a word of knowledge or a prophecy. And it's the problem of the now 
and the not yet. We see some evidence of these things, but it's not yet guaranteed. And we have to live in that slightly awkward place, which at times is really uncomfortable. But then we read, be still and know that I am God, which can seem to be a sort of pastoral encouragement from God, an arm round the shoulders. We imagine him saying, don't worry about these things, I am in control. That may be true, but it's not what is meant here. It's not primarily a word of comfort to those in the war in which God is not intervening, or those still being hit by the arrows and spears of the enemy, or us in that awkward place where we keep praying for healing and nothing seems to be happening. As Derek Kidner puts it in his commentary on this psalm, it is a rebuke to a restless and turbulent world. Quiet! In fact, leave off! That may remind you of a similar occasion in the New Testament. Jesus was asleep in a boat with his disciples when a storm blew up and started to flood the boat. They woke him up. He rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush! Be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, good thing you woke me up then because it could have got really nasty. (laughs) No, he says, why are you so timid? How is it that you have no faith? That's a bit harsh, isn't it? Well, no. Because with Jesus in the boat... They were in no more danger when the storm was raging as when it was calm. And we have to live in that place all the time. Because there may be storms raging all around us. But we have the Holy Spirit living within us. Are we going to trust him? Possibly even with our lives. Are we going to refuge in him? Are we prepared to live in such a way that demonstrates we trust God regardless of what is happening around us and yet still have faith that he will intervene and maintain that faith even when he doesn't? That's the challenge of the now and the not yet. About four years ago, Bill Johnson preached about enduring faith around the time that his father died of cancer. He had prayed and prayed for healing, but still his father died. The essence of his message was, God is good all the time. And that is a foundational truth we cannot change. Everything must be set against that plumb line, even if we cannot reconcile what we see with that truth. That truth always wins. And we must live with the mystery rather than doubt God. That's what Johnny demonstrated when she prayed in the recording studio Let this quadriplegic body sing 
even though the lungs have limited capacity, even though this body is old, let it sing. And she did that, not in the quiet of her own home before she left. She did it in the recording studio, in that public setting with the technicians all around her. And if for some reason God answered no, then she would live in that awkward place of the now and still believe for the not yet. And then as a final reminder of what the reality is, regardless of what we may see around us, the sons of Korah remind us, I am God. I will be exalted in the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Let's live like the sons of Korah, like Johnny Erickson, like Bill Johnson, and find God as our refuge, our strength, our stronghold in all the challenges of life. Amen. Amen.